Did you all have fun on the conference? Anybody that went? Yes? All right. Summer conference is better. It really is because it's, it's all, what's it, four days at the beach, free time from lunch to dinner. Well, no, it's Monday. It's really Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday because you get there on Monday. So um, it's awesome. Seminars in the mornings and then free time every afternoon. It's like, what, 350 bucks right on the beach. It's hard to beat that. So uh, think about it. We'd love to take you. Um, all right. See you guys. All right. So we're looking at Hebrews chapter 13. Going to finish the book of Hebrews tonight. And then, as I said, I'm going to start Ecclesiastes. I don't know if you've ever studied the book of Ecclesiastes. I love talking about Ecclesiastes. So I'll do a little introduction to that next week. And then you'll have break. And then that's what we'll do for the rest of the semester. All right. So... You know, um, Wendy and I were sad to miss the RUF conference, but we got to be part of a big event um, somewhere else that was like a national RUF event that um, basically like celebrated the work of RUF. And it was really, it was really cool because I've been working with RUF now 24 years. And this event involved bringing back people that had been former campus ministers and different people talking about the work of RUF. Uh, and then bringing in some people that have supported the work with their financial gifts and prayers and whatnot. And um, it, it, was really, it was really sweet. And um, as I was even working on this message, I was just thinking about, you know, I don't know, just reminiscing, I guess, about some things. But I also, um, you know, I, I noticed when we got to the airport, they've changed the national airport where you go pick up your Uber or your Lyft. I don't know if you noticed that. And now you have to walk right by the people that valet their cars. And I thought, oh, that's how some people do it. You know, they just valet their cars. We get an Uber. Um, but I was just thinking about, even as I was looking at this message, I was thinking about, um, you know, depending on what you have really can change the way you live. Um, depending on what you have can change the way you live. And I think the way the writer to the Hebrews ends this letter is reminding these people what they have. And then calling them to live like no one else. And that's how we're going to look at it tonight. We're going to kind of go through what are the things that the writer of the Hebrews wants to remind these people that they have. And then how does he call them to live? What's kind of the closing parting shot? And I think it's very relevant for us today. You know, the people that this letter is written to were people who were Jewish in background. They were most likely in Rome. Actually, the very end of the letter here uh, Paul says that the people from Italy send their greetings. And what, what we think that that is, is there are people who know the people in this church. They're from Rome, but they're not at Rome. They're where Paul is. And that's one of the reasons we think that this letter was written to a small group of Christians in Rome. But they've begun to suffer persecution. And there's going to be even more intense persecution coming. And so this, is, this letter really is a sermon that's written down as a letter. And it's an exhortation to them, pleading with them to not turn back from following Jesus. And what he does to end the letter is he, he well, he kind of, again, he reminds them of what they have. And then he calls them to live in a way that sort of reorients them and really turns upside down, I think, the way most of us try to live. So with that as a little introduction, let's read really verses 7 through you know, it's really verse uh, 15 that I'm focusing on, so we're just going to read that. 
7 through 15. Yeah. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Don't worry, I'm going to explain this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, that means outside the city gate of Jerusalem, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And that's really all we're going to have time to look at tonight. So let's pray, and then we're going to dig into this portion of God's word. Lord, we do thank you that, um, that you have given us your word. Lord, we come to it every week, but Lord, we never want to take for granted that you are a God who speaks doesn't leave us just kind of groping around in the dark, trying to figure out who you are, what you're like, how you want us to live. Thank you for that. Though at times the things you tell us are hard, we thank you that you speak truthfully. We thank you for that, even tonight, that we get to study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I said, um, we're going to talk about remembering what we've been given Then we're going to talk about eating what's put before us. Because there's a whole little weird thing about the eating and all that. What is that about? We're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about what does it mean to go to Christ outside the city gate, bearing the reproach or bearing the shame that he himself endured. So what are we to remember about what we've been given? The first is interesting. We've been given leaders who went before us. Now, this is not really talking about me. This is not even for the Hebrews talking about the leaders that were currently their leaders. That actually comes a little later in the letter, in the part I didn't read. These are the leaders who originally brought the gospel to this church. And from the way he describes it, it seems that they're not there anymore. Maybe they've died by this point. Earlier in the letter of the Hebrews, back in chapter 2... Um, the writer of the Hebrews talks about there's the generation of the apostles, those who heard Jesus, but the people um, at the Hebrews church are not those people. They're kind of the people that heard through those people, okay? And here he's talking about the leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And that word outcome means basically consider their whole life Consider their life. Consider what came of their life. That's why we think that at this point, probably he's talking about people that have gone on already and are no longer here. Now, what does that mean? Well, here's here's part of what it means. Christianity is not some new invention. 
And this is what, you know, I was reminded of this even as I was at this weekend and celebrating. I've been working with RUF 24 years, but RUF has been around since 1972. It's a long time. And you think about, uh, about Christianity, maybe you've picked up on this, it has a historical bent to it. Now, there are other religions that have events and teachings. But Christianity is, is really somewhat unique in that the events are critical. The events are critical. It doesn't really matter if the Buddha actually lived. It really doesn't. Because the heart of Buddhism is what he taught. Same is not true of Jesus in Christianity. It matters whether he lived and died and is raised again. In Christianity, the teachings explain the events. The events are critical, and thus there is a historical bent. We're always looking back to something that actually happened. And it even carries over into the way that we think about the church. It's not just the people who are alive right now. It even involves people who've went before us, and the Bible tells us that we are to think about them, to consider their way of life, and remember these people who spoke the word of God to you. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking even about my own journey. Now, the people that went before us were not perfect. You know, even people that really had a lot of great things to say, like Jonathan Edwards held slaves, right? So the people are not perfect. Martin Luther said some amazing things, and then he said some really crazy things, right? Though some of the crazy things he's, you know, people always bring up are maybe better understood in context, but I'm not going to defend everything that everybody in the past has said. But there is something about understanding the heritage that we've come from. And, and I was thinking about this book. I found this book in a cool bookstore in Boston when I was about your age. And I remember, I didn't know who Robert Murray McShane is. I know now because we actually named Cooper my oldest son, who some of you met, Cooper McShane, because of the influence of this book. It was $2.50. It's a little water damaged, but still $2.50 for a cool book from the late 1800s. I remember seeing it in this bookstore and thought, oh, it's red. And so it stuck out among all the other brown books. It was an amazing bookstore because it was in the basement of the old South Meeting House, which is a cool old church building in Boston where George Whitfield, if you know who that is, actually preached. So they got this cool bookstore in the basement. It was near where I lived my senior year in college, and I would pop over there from time to time. I didn't know who Robert Murray McShane was. I didn't. But when you look at the beginning, you realize right at the beginning here that he was Scottish, and I thought, that's cool. He was Presbyterian minister, and I was like, I don't know much about Presbyterians, but he's Scottish, and that's cool, and it's $2.50, and it's a book from the 1800s, and by browsing around, looking at it a little bit, I realized that he died before he was 30, and I remember thinking, he died before he's 30, and there's a whole book about him. I guess it's worth reading, right? <laughs> that's literally what I thought, and that book for me was profound. Because what this book is, is mostly his prayer journal. A friend of his, after he died, you know, kind of basically, you know, printed most of his prayer journal with like little narrative sections so you know what's going on. And it was profound for me. Uh, when I think about the, the impact of his life, and I began to learn more and more, but what really struck me was his longing for holiness. 
in a way that I had never experienced before. And it actually made me think, huh, if this is what Presbyterians are like, maybe I should look into Presbyterians some more, right? So it certainly had a big influence. If you don't know, I'm an ordained Presbyterian minister now. <laughs> but I, it also, you know, right around this time, and maybe one of the reasons that I was in that used bookstore in the first place is because when I started getting more serious about God, or really when I realized that I hadn't been very serious about God for quite a while, by the time I got to be a senior in college, I was just kind of like, you know, I really don't know much of anything about Christianity, but I've been a Christian since ninth grade. Like, what have I been doing? Maybe I need to figure out what I believe about some things, right? So I started looking for some books, and I started, like many people do, with C.S. Lewis. And um, somewhere along the line, I found this um, book called um, God in the Dock, which is a bunch of different essays. And there's an essay in that book that I read called On the Reading of Old Books. Anybody ever heard of this essay? It's on the reading of old books. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. For every new book you read, you should read two old books because it's one of the best ways to see past your cultural blinders. And since Christianity is, you know, a religion with people who've went before us, who've understood God and experienced God, have wrestled with the Bible, you can actually learn a lot of things about them. And it just started me kind of on this bent to start looking for old books. And I kept finding the old books were so helpful. Now, I'll tell you, it's not just my experience. I've actually twice in my life had the opportunity to sit down and have a meal, just me and Tim Keller. Twice, okay? It's been quite a while, but one of those times we were talking about college ministry. Now, his son actually did RUF for a while as well. He was a campus minister for a while before he planted a church. And um, so, so he knew about RUF, and, and he's come and done staff training for us. And anyway, he said, you know, if I was talking to college students today, you want to know what he said we should do? He said, I would make sure you have them read some of the great old Reformed books. Because so many people are reading new books, and they don't have any connection to the, the wealth of spiritual riches that are in books by people like John Newton, J.C. Ryle, Charles Spurgeon, the old Princeton guys like B.B. Warfield, Archibald Alexander, I'm going to use a quote from him later tonight, and, um, and the Puritans. He was a Puritan fanatic for many, many years. So I, I just want to tell you, when I, when I think about this, I do want that to be part of the way you think about Christianity. Maybe this summer you want to try and, and read some older books. I would love to give you advice on some things to read. Because... Christianity, again, it's not a new invention. And sometimes people thought about things differently in older times. This is one of the reasons we sing these old hymns. It's not that the older people were right. Sometimes they're wrong. But the thing is, you'll never ask whether your assumptions are right or wrong unless you have some kind of foil. Unless you have some, some other Christian who's saying, you know, uh, suffering is one of God's best tools. Oh, Really? That doesn't seem to be what a lot of people I know today think. I wonder if that's true. I won't even ask the question and consider it unless I'm reading some of these older books. All right, that's kind of a long thing. But it, it was huge for me. I just have to tell you, it was, it was huge for me. And it's actually a biblical idea. Consider those who went before us, the outcome of their life, what they have to say. All right, so that's one thing we have. We have this rich legacy. We have those who went before us. You're not just 
to figure out Christianity by asking your friends what they think. Right? There are really people that can help you understand what Christianity is all about. Second, we've been given a never-changing Savior. Look at verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And then I'm going to read verse 9 as well. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Now, this, I think those two things go together. I know verse 8 is a great little slogan. You can just isolate that verse and it's great. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But in its context, the, the, the implication that the writer of the Hebrews draws from that is, therefore, the truth about him and the heart of Christianity is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Don't be led away by new, novel kinds of teachings because Jesus isn't changing. Now, we live in a day and age where the new and the novel is always lifted up above the traditional. Now, there are things that are wrong sometimes with traditional views. And this is the thing, you know, the scripture always, we always need to keep going back to the scripture and seeing if things that have been handed down to us are true and are right. But we don't just throw out things because they're old. And the reason that is, is because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Sometimes the novel is that. It's new and novel, but it's not true. I think back years ago, I remember meeting a student at another college, wasn't at Belmont, but he was a grad student, and we just got talking about his area of research, and he told me that he'd made quite a name for himself and really had, had kind of a budding career lecturing uh, all over the country about C.S. Lewis. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I like C.S. Lewis. You know, what, in, in what particular, you know, kind of focus of your research? He said, well, I have this idea that when C.S. Lewis's wife, Joy, died of cancer, he actually lost his faith, and he never got it back again. And I was like, oh, really? Now, I'd read A Grief Observed, which is the book he wrote about wrestling with God after she died. Surely didn't seem to me like he'd lost his faith. I said, well, do you actually believe that? Here's what he said. He said, no. But it's a fresh, bold approach. And so I get asked to lecture about it. Beware of new and diverse, strange teachings. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes people just want some new, fresh, novel approach. Now, sometimes it's good to come at a problem in a, with a new perspective. But if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, then there is actually something good about understanding the way Christianity has been understood. And before you depart from it, you should at least understand it. So we've been given a never-changing Savior. In other words, you can find comfort. Remember, the Hebrews are about to undergo persecution. You can find comfort now in what Jesus did and in what he's promised to do. But it's important that you actually understand what that is. That's teaching. That's doctrine. What did Jesus do? Well, he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So it's important you can understand and take comfort from what he did in the past and what he's promised to do in the future. Because what's not changing? Jesus and his character and his faithfulness. We've also been given truth that's unchanging. This is kind of the corollary of this. There's, um, there's a great uh, quote. Sometimes this guy, Charles Hodge, who used to, 
was a professor for over 50 years at Princeton Theological Seminary, when it was a more conservative theological place than it is now, um, he was famous for saying this, a new thought has never originated at Princeton Theological Seminary. Now he gets mocked for that, but his point was this, if it's God-breathed revelation, our job is to understand it, not to make up new stuff. And that's important because there are things in the Bible and things about Christianity that are hard, that are hard for me, that are hard for you. A guy that really influenced me when I was reading books like Robert Murray Shane's was a guy named Harry Blumier's. He was a student of C.S. Lewis's, but he also wrote a number of books himself. And he said this one time, he said, never defend Christianity like it's your own invention, like you made it up. We are witnesses to the truth. We are not inventors of the truth. And that's helped me. And especially helped me when I find there are places even in the Bible where, for instance, Paul in Romans 9 says, I have unceasing anguish in my heart for my fellow countrymen, the Jews. And then he goes and talks about some hard doctrine. But I love that he says, look, this is true. I'm a witness to this truth because God has said this, but I don't actually like it very much. That really helps me. That helps me keep going with this whole thing. So, We've been given a never-changing Savior. We've been given leaders who went before us. We've been given truth that's unchanging. And we've been given real food which nourishes us. Now, I gave you this long quote, and and I'm not going to read it all. But I do want to say, like, the contrast that's being drawn here is really interesting. It's good for the heart. This is the second half of verse 9. It's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by food. Some translations say not by ceremonial foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, what's the contrast? The contrast is between things that we do and things that God has done. For your heart to be strengthened by grace rather than ceremonial foods, it is a reference to these Jewish background Christians It's a reference to the way that the religion they've come out of, okay, which was a lot about things that you had to do. And you had to do all these things just the right way. And if you did them just the right way, then God would be pleased. Now, it was actually gracious of God to even say, you sinful people can actually be in a relationship with me. And what I'm going to try to teach you is that to be in a relationship with me is a really big deal. You don't just walk into my presence. This is part of what God is trying to teach people so that they'll understand why was it that Jesus needed to come to live and die in the place of sinners. Like that hymn that we sang, Upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die. Charles Spurgeon used to actually quoted that little hymn in one of my favorite little summaries of what is Christianity. What is the heart of the gospel, the good news? It's this, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. That's Christianity. It is. And it's about grace. It's not about what you do. But there are times when we find it easier, maybe more comforting, to trust in things that we can do, whether it's little rituals or trust in things that we haven't done. And that's the contrast here. This isn't just an issue for people who have come out of Judaism into Christianity. It's an issue for all of us, because all of us, there's certain certain things that we feel like, well, if I do this, well, then it's going it's to lead to this kind of certain result that I really want. 
and we kind of put our hope in those things, they let us down over and over again. The only thing that we really can feed on is grace. And that brings us to the next section. We're to eat what is served. Being a Christian means eating what God serves. I love that image. It's actually an image that runs all through the Bible. If you even think about the book of Genesis and you think about the creation story and you think about Adam and Eve in the garden, it's at one level it's a story about whether or not they're going to eat what God serves or whether they're going to eat what looks good to them to eat. And it runs all the way through it. Eating what God serves. There's a great poet, R.S. Thomas, that put it this way. There are other people in the world sitting at table contented, though the broken body and the shed blood are not on the menu. Harry Blameers, again, that guy I mentioned a few minutes ago, he he said it this way. There's something presumptuous in having the divine body and blood on one's menu. The more vividly you try to realize what it means to eat your Lord's flesh and drink his blood, the more outrageous it seems. But an order is an order, and Christ made this particular order very clear indeed. Have we the right to turn aside, even on the very sure ground of our own unworthiness? Sometimes we don't want to eat what God puts on the menu because we think that something else will satisfy. We read that in the call to worship, right? God's saying, come to me and buy without money, and I will give you the richest affair. Why do we waste our money on things that do not satisfy? But we do it all the time, right? There's one of the uh, places in the book of Isaiah where he talks about putting our trust in idols and other things other than God. And he says about the people that, that trust in idols that they're feeding on ashes, I like that image. Feeding on ashes doesn't fill you up. It may for a little bit, but not for long. So this idea of eating, it it, it actually runs all the way through the Bible. And eating what God serves, what does God serve? God serves the body and blood of Jesus. Now, that means that you take him and him alone for your nourishment, for your life. Sometimes we shrink back, right? Sometimes we shrink back. It seems that we want to contribute something so that we can kind of pat ourselves on the back a little bit. And that's, I love this old poem by George Herbert. I think I posted this on the the Belmont Area Facebook page. George Herbert, do you know this one? Love bade me welcome. Love bade me welcome. Yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. 
I, the unkind, ungrateful? Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it deserves. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Have you ever been in that place of protesting to God that you don't deserve his love? Sometimes we say it outright. Most of the time we just feel it and we just kind of move away from him. But being a Christian means eating what's on the menu, not because you deserve it, but because he serves it to you. See, a Christian is one for whom God did not take no for an answer, but insisted that you sit down and eat. And God continues to insist that we eat food of which we're not worthy. He insists that we draw our nourishment from the broken body and the precious blood of our Lord. And he promised to feed us with the richest affair for free. Come, buy without money. But notice, this is the paradox. It's free, but it's not without cost. It's free, but it's not without cost. It's free to us, but it cost him everything to provide this meal of grace. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything God has been teaching his people about eating and about bread. You know, there's this fascinating thing in the tabernacle, which this is referenced in here, the altar and the tabernacle, in the tent, which sometimes Hebrews calls it the tent, sometimes it's called the tabernacle. They had the whole, all the worship stuff kind of set up, very specifically the way God told them. And one of the things that was there, right in the middle of the temple, right in the middle of this, this tent, is a table of pure gold. And on it is bread. And the priests, as part of the worship, are supposed to feast on that bread from that gold table right in God's presence. It's fascinating because God's signifying, again, I didn't create you just to be my little worker bees. I created you for rich, intimate relationship, which in the Bible always involves sitting down and eating. Do you ever think about that weird thing in Psalm 23? How he's going to prepare a place, a table for us? in the presence of our enemies? Like when, it, when everything seems so dangerous, God says, no, sit down and eat. It's okay, I got this. Let's sit down and eat and enjoy our relationship. And this is what sets us free to join Jesus outside the city gate. He's given us all these things, all that we need, but then he calls us to this, this odd thing Look at verse 11. It talks about, now in the Old Testament, there were different kinds of sacrifices, and one of them involved taking the animal outside the city gate and burning it. Okay? And the one who burned it, took it out, was actually unclean themselves just by taking it outside of the camp. And the writer of the Hebrews says, that's what Jesus did. 
Christ was crucified, and this is historically literally true. He was crucified outside of the city gate, a place called Golgotha, which stands for, means the place of the skull. And in Jesus' day, Golgotha was a trash heap. They set up those crosses in the trash heap. It's a place of shame, humiliation. And it's hard to... It's hard to get yourself into the mind of like a Hebrew, somebody, a Jewish background reading this. What? Like the place of shame, the place of ultimate unholiness, that's how God makes us holy, clean and beautiful in his sight? And that's exactly what it says. Look at this, verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Here's what he's saying. Try try and get your mind around this if you're you're thinking as a Jewish background person. Jesus makes us clean by going to the place that is ultimate shame. Jesus turns upside down the place of shame and makes it the place of glory. The most unclean place is the place where we are cleansed. Philip Hughes, commentator, says this, how extraordinary, indeed shocking to the Hebrew mind, to be told that he went outside the gate to sanctify or to cleanse the people through his own blood precisely on this unsanctified territory. The location of Calvary, Golgotha, was one of defilement, not sanctification, not cleansing. But, get this, when Jesus goes there, the presence of God's Holy One makes holy what was previously unholy. The most foul place, the place of death, is transformed by the presence of the Holy One. And that's what it means to be a Christian, guys. You can't come to God, but Jesus goes to you in the midst of your sin and shame. In the midst of right where you are. Even when you can't get up and take a step to him, he comes to you and he transforms that place of shame and guilt where you're just buried in your your sin and and you just can't, can't can't even function. And he comes to that very place and transforms it. Because he lived and he died in our place. He comes to us on holy ground, as it were, and cleanses us. He draws near to those who can't come. And then we're invited to bear the disgrace he bore. Look at verse 13. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. You know, this is the reorientation part of this passage. 
what, is it, what do you expect it to feel like to, to follow a crucified God? What do we expect that to feel like? Uh, there's this great song, it's older now, but I, I still love it, by this guy, Steve Taylor. He, uh, it's called Jesus is for Losers. And, and one of the lines that just always kind of sticks with me is this, if Jesus is for losers, then why do I still play to the crowd? Like, just remembering Jesus is for losers should change the way you think about everything. We get so caught up in trying to be powerful. We got so caught up in trying to be insiders rather than outsiders. I think about, you know, how our kind of political stuff we've been through the last couple of years, the way we see Christians trying to use power to be powerful, trying to be insiders, trying to be in the place of power rather than bearing the reproach that Jesus bore. I just go, man, we need some reorientation. What does it mean for God's people to go to him outside the city gate and bear the reproach he bore? And are you trying to avoid that at all costs? You can't. That's where he is. That's where he is. That's where he comes and does his most powerful work. And he says, come be with me there. C.S. Lewis has this other essay that's so powerful. If you've never read it, you should look it up on, on the internet and read it called The Inner Ring. The Inner Ring, he says, is one of the most powerful forces for evil in our world today. The Inner Ring is this lust that we have to be part of the in-group. And he says, whatever you're part of, whether it's RUF or a small group or a sorority or whatever you're part of, you always have the sense that you're not really on the inside click. And then you do everything you can to get inside. Sometimes you really shock yourselves by the things you'll do or not do. Gossip is a big part of this, right? Makes you feel like you're in the know and part of the powerful inside group. We do all kinds of things that we look at ourselves like, Oh, I'm embarrassed that I would be like that. But the lust to be in the inner ring is so powerful. You know what breaks it? Going outside the city gate to meet Jesus there. You were never made to be in the inner ring. And honestly, as soon as you think you're in the inner ring, you realize there's an even more inner ring and you're never satisfied. But you don't need it because you already have access into the Holy of Holies. Jesus has opened the way to the very presence of God for you to worship him, to come boldly before the throne. We get so caught up in trying to be part of the insiders. But we don't have to. We don't need it now and we don't need it in the future because as this conclusion says, we don't have an enduring city here, but we look for the city that is to come. The call to join Jesus outside the city gate is, is a call to separate ourselves from all the illusions that promise worldly security here. And while our illusions might be different than the Hebrews experienced, the call is still the same. You were made for a city which is real and assured, and it is to come because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his death secured your entrance to the city and his promise assures us that it's coming. It's coming.